Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is the Den of Geek podcast, featuring commentary on the latest news from denofgeek.com, as well as other behind-the-scenes content from your favorite movies, TV shows, and more. My name is Mike. And I'm Dave, and this is episode 18, the early edition of G News for October 2018. And we got a bunch of topics for you today, including uh, pretty much stuff from all the different categories. I think we're doing some music instead of gaming this time, but that's a that's a fun topic to stick in there every now and then. <laughs> yeah, and it had an artist that I just couldn't ignore, had to talk about him a little bit. Yeah, I can't wait for that. And for our bonus item, we have someone from the movies, Chin Han, who plays a wonderful character, the tech genius in the Dwayne Johnson vehicle, Skyscraper, which I very much enjoyed. It was a great movie in the tradition of Die Hard and Towering Inferno, as we'll talk about in that interview. But let's go ahead and dive into it, because we got a lot of great things to discuss from the first part of October. All right, well, Michael, you know I'm not a big horror movie fan, but every year as Halloween approaches, I can't help but look at lists and become intrigued by the genre. Invariably, I sit down, check out what's new, sometimes what's old. And I mean, everybody knows about John Carpenter's Halloween, Friday the 13th, but Sarah Dobbs has put together a list of 25 horror films that most fans have likely never seen and in many cases never even heard of, which is certainly the case. Yeah, that's pretty likely for me and you, I guess. Yes. Now, I think we can all agree that the woods or wooded areas, particularly at night, provide a substantial creepiness factor. Uh Uh-huh. Add in an exclusive private school and you've got the basics for a classic horror tale. (laughs) So the 2006 film The Woods follows rebellious teen Heather as she enrolls in an elite boarding school that just so happens to be located in the middle of the woods. Oh, okay. (laughs) And she quickly finds out, surprise, surprise, that all is not as it seems. And if you have woods, you've got to have whispering trees. And The Woods provides that early on. Girls are going missing, and of course, the prime suspect are the teachers and the headmistress, all elements that make for a surprisingly compelling tale. And again, not one I've heard of. Right. Now, if you're going to be a producer, director of horror films, I mean, what better nom de plume than the Butcher Brothers? (laughs) And Mitchell Altieri and Phil Flores, aka the Butcher Brothers, who They're actually not related, but they released The Violent Kind in 2010, and it's described on the box as Sons of Anarchy meets The Exorcist. (laughs) Oh, that's compelling. Right. So we've got a biker gang that heads up to an abandoned cabin in the woods. There we go with the woods again for a party and soon finds that as scary as they are, there's something much, much scarier lying in wait for them. All right. Now, you'll 
probably have to be able to forgive the spotty, and that's being kind, CGI effects, because the other horror special effects are actually pretty decent. The blood, the dismemberment, things like that. So Violent Kind, 2010, Butcher Brothers on the list. All right. Now, finally, I couldn't help but notice that one of my favorite actors, Rupert Everett, appeared in one of the films on this list. 1994's Cemetery Man. I mean, how perfect is that for a title? (laughs) And it follows Everett as the caretaker of a local graveyard. And in the course of his work, he meets a beautiful young widow whose deceased husband returns to bite her, turn her into a zombie. And that should pretty much tell you everything you need to know about this film. But (laughs) for 22 more options, check out Sarah Dobbs article, the 25 best horror movies you've never seen. And I love when Halloween rolls around and then Den of Geek gets into the spirit of things because, yeah, horror is very prevalent on the site during the month of October. But uh, one of the movie announcements that I caught and most of my pieces actually come to us from New York Comic Con news because I did attend that convention. And one of the displays that was at the convention was for Mortal Engines. And Dave, you and I have said for a long time that there's just not enough steampunk out there, whether on uh, television or in movies and mortal engines is bringing that to the screen. And I'm so excited for this one. Wow. Now, had you heard of that book before? I didn't No, this was new to me. So I saw the preview many times as I walked by their booth, cause it was very prevalently located in the show floor, but there's an article that Matthew Shookman and David Crow wrote for Mortal Engines because they participated in the press room and their article is called Adapting Mortal Engines for the Screen. And basically it was an interview with some of the producers. And if you don't know, Mortal Engines is Peter Jackson's adaptation of the Philip Reeve book series. And it's a project long in the making because Jackson picked up the rights for Mortal Engines before he even planned to do The Hobbit. But of course, Warner Brothers had other plans for him. So it's taken a back seat for a while. But now finally, alongside his writing partner's Fran Walsh and Philippa Boyens, Jackson is bringing his script to life. But in the end, Christian Rivers is the one taking over the directorial reins because he was a second unit director on the Hobbit trilogy and a visual effects supervisor on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And Jackson, I think, just needed a break. So he stayed on to write the picture. But here's a quick clip of Jackson talking to Den of Geek reporter Matthew Shookman at New York Comic Con about why he's not directing this one. We were going to make it, then we got interrupted by The Hobbit, which Warner's suddenly got the rights to that, and which ended up obviously making three movies back-to-back, and uh, came out of that thinking I was a bit exhausted. But our rights were going to run out for the Mortal Engines books, and I barely wanted to see this film made. So, you know, so it was actually it was a fun experience for me because I got, to, I got to do everything that I really enjoy about films. I, You know, I got to work on the script, which I really love, help, help with some casting and things, but then um, the, the poor you know, guy that had to show up every day and direct it was... was was uh, Christian and I got to stay in bed. And I think he very much deserved a break after the uh, Hobbit marathon that he pulled off. But Mortal Engines is steampunk through and through, but not actually in the traditional alternate history from the Victorian age that we're used to. This world is one that reemerged from a future apocalypse and the technology just happened to take a different route up there in the future. So on the casting side of things, all hands involved seemed very pleased with their two discoveries for the lead roles. Hera Hilmar as Hester Shaw, who is a scarred scrapper whose home village was consumed by a movable feasting London on wheels. A really cool sight to see on screen. And 
then Robert Sheehan is playing Tom Natsworthy. And the characters were actually aged up from the young children that appear in the books, which Philippa Boyens told Matthew was because should there be a sequel or even a franchise, she didn't want the characters to have to be recast for time jumps. And then you also avoid the Harry Potter effect where they just age a little bit too quickly. And Boyan said this way, they're a little bit older, but not too much older. And they can also move forward with the story if it should happen that way. And I am personally rooting for a franchise here. <laughs> a movable feasting London on wheels. Sounds like Dr. Who very much. So yes, yes. And, and just the cool outfits that they have in the, the wardrobe and the, gears and the, all the stuff that they have that that is very steampunky and then like i said the installment at new york comic-con was great attendees were able to put on period wear from the movie and were directed against a backdrop and you had to sort of lurch around <laughs> at the director's behest because they were supposedly on this massive vehicle that they were standing on and they're actually going to take this footage that they got at the convention and put them down as extras that will be featured in the trailer for the movie closer to the December 14th release date for that movie. So that's one I'm definitely looking forward to. Cool. All right. I'm going to admit it here on the air. I don't watch Supernatural. (laughs) Nor do I actually. Uh, I've seen the pilot. And as you know, I've seen the Wayward Sisters episode because of the interview we did. And and actually, I quite enjoyed them. But but that's it. And I know I'm alone in my misery. But... (laughs) The CW Juggernaut just aired its season 14 premiere and shows no signs of slowing down. So what is it about the Winchester brothers that keeps fans returning year after year? Now, obviously, much of the show's success rests on the shoulders of Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles, who have portrayed the monster hunting Winchester brothers through every episode of the series. And additionally, a number of high-profile genre actors have come and gone, including Lauren Cohan, Katie Cassidy, Mark Shepard, Mark Pellegrino, Alexander Calvert, and, of course, the de facto third lead actor, Misha Collins. Yes, some fan favorites. Yes. Now, in terms of its episodic structure, while it's certainly made some tweaks along the way, the basic approach stays the same as the writer's balance overreaching story arcs with standalone episodes and even though the first major arc resolved itself at the end of season five and driving force eric kripke left the show each season has brought something special in and of itself season eight allowed sam and dean to have a base of operations other than their car (laughs) and they got to explore their men of letters heritage well that's not all i mean it's 14 seasons so it can certainly be argued that the Marvel Cinematic Universe has become ubiquitous and the MCU even impacted Supernatural. What? I didn't know this. Well, Ackles was reportedly offered the role of Hawkeye after an unsuccessful audition for Captain America, but he chose to prioritize Supernatural, perhaps preferring a steady paycheck over a role most fans are constantly convinced is about to be written out of the MCU. <laughs> yes, that's true. So if you're a Supernatural fan, which statistically is pretty likely, <laughs> check out the rest of Juliet Harrison's article, How on Earth is Supernatural Still Going? And really dig into what makes the show so great. I love that headline. I mean, if you don't click on that, there's something wrong with you. Even if you don't watch Supernatural, obviously it hooked you, Dave. Yep. Well, my second story uh, is also from television and also from New York Comic Con. And I attended this particular announcement And Joseph Baxter wrote it up for Den of Geek. It's an article called The Boys Amazon TV Series, Simon Pegg, 
joins the cast. And if you if you're not sure why that's exciting, let me tell you about it. Because first of all, I actually visited the set of the boys, and when I went to Toronto to visit the set, I was already a fan of Garth Ennis comic book adaptations because of Preacher. But I actually wasn't familiar with this title and I had no idea what to expect when I got to the set. But it follows a team of ultra-violent but government-sanctioned heavyweights who keep the superheroes called soups in this world. And there are a ton of them. Oh, that explains your hat. (laughs) Yes, they gave out F soups hats at the panel. But the thing about this world is that the soups are not so honorable let's say their public personas are legendary and the people worship them but their private lives are filled with corruption and as i read the comics in preparation for meeting the cast i was immediately hooked on this concept so the first person we met at the set visit was derek robertson who was the original artist for the 2008 title and one of the things we quickly noted was that he modeled one of the main characters a new recruit to the boys that acts as sort of the audience proxy. His name was Wee Huey, and Derek Robertson modeled the drawing of this character after Simon Pegg, who he admired from some obscure British television shows at the time. In fact, it was right around the same time as Shaun of the Dead sort of made Simon Pegg more of a household name. But in the TV show, Jack Quaid, son of Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, plays the Huey character, and he's decidedly not small the way we Huey was in the comic book. So that was kind of something that everyone was asking about when this show was first announced. Well, at the New York Comic-Con panel, and you know they love to pull out surprises <laughs> at the San Diego Comic-Con and the New York Comic-Con. And it was on October 5th. They were talking, answering questions just like normal. And suddenly Jack Quaid turned off stage asking if Simon Pegg could come out, which he did to wild applause from the audience. So here's Simon making the announcement to the assembled about why he was there. I'm here for two reasons. Firstly, to endorse this beautiful young boy here, Jack Quaid, as the true, the one true Huey. (laughs) And to also let you know that I will also be appearing in The Boys in the only role I could possibly play, Huey's father. And I'm damn pleased about it, I can tell you. So this is great. He's going to be playing Huey's father as a nice little nod to the original inspiration. So this will no doubt make comic fans very happy. And at the panel, they also debuted some great key art, some posters that they also handed out along with those hats. And they also had a new trailer for the series, which is just awesome. It features Elizabeth Shue talking about Vought International, which is the PR company that manages The Seven which is the most popular supergroup around. Think of Vought International as Marvel and the seven is like the Avengers. <laughs> so okay. this is the target that the boys have in their sights. The series stars Carl Urban sporting a Cockney accent as Billy Butcher. And it also has other notable names, but for the full list and other news about this show called the boys, see Joseph Baxter's article, the boys Amazon TV series, Simon Pegg joins cast. All right. Sounds cool. Now, as you said at the beginning of the podcast, we don't ordinarily tackle music, but even though the induction won't take place until March of 2019, this year's 15 nominees to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame have been announced. Oh, boy. 
Yep. Now, to be eligible this year, each nominee's first single or album had to have been released in the year 1993 or earlier. So who are this year's nominees? Rufus and Chaka Khan, Rage Against the Machine, Stevie Nicks as a solo artist. She's already in for Fleetwood Mac. I like this list so far. Go. Todd Rundgren. <laughs> oh, boy. The Cure. Def Leppard. We Are Devo. <laughs> Janet Jackson. Kraftwerk. LL Cool J, Roxy Music, John Prine, MC5, Radiohead, and The Zombies. There's a few unfamiliar ones in there, but yeah, some great ones. Yep. Now, I'll say it up front. My personal favorite, without question, is Todd Rundgren. Uh, I'm right there with you. Now, it always amazes me how few supposed music fans even know Todd Rundgren. And over the years, he's embraced many different styles. Not surprisingly, I'm most fond of his heavier mid-70s bands and albums like the double album Todd and Wizard of True Star. My favorite is acapella. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, knowing you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Not surprising. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame website describes him this way. Where most artists strive to build one audience, Todd Rundgren has built several devoted fan bases all over the world. Now, I've seen him several times, once at a very small club where I was literally at his feet and could have manipulated his pedal board had I been brave or stupid enough. <laughs> and aside from his own writing and recording, he's also been a prolific producer handling everyone from meatloaf to Hall and Oates. Now, my brother-in-law would disown me if I didn't mention The Cure, a band whose sound has been called post-punk, gothic rock, new wave, alternative, but as frontman Robert Smith says, it's all just Cure music. <laughs> yeah. Now, the acclaimed album Blood Flowers ushered in the new millennium, earned The Cure a Grammy nomination, and provided a glimpse into how the band would be viewed in the new century. And from an MTV Icon Award in 2004 to the Banner Year in 2008, with four number one hit signals and plans to headline 20 festivals in 2019, it's pretty clear that the band's current chapter is one of the best yet. So certainly deserving to be there. And then finally, one of the heavy rock seminal outfits MC5 or Motor City 5 uh, is one of the nominees. This and is not one I'm familiar with. You'll have to tell me about it. Yeah, this is a uh, mid-60s, you know, sort of like Steppenwolf in that kind of a vein. And from their official Rock and Roll Hall of Fame bio, 
draped in red, white, and blue. The MC5 were a high-watt onslaught of musicians. Stun guitarist Wayne Kramer and Fred Sonic Smith, bassist Michael Davis, drummer Dennis Thompson, and brain-shattering lead singer Rob (laughs) Tyner highlight the group. The Motor City Five kicked out the jams and politicized every bystander in sight. Their sound was a unique combination of R&B, psychedelia, and garage rock with dominant political messages. Hmm. So you like Rage Against the Machine, which is another very political band that's more contemporary. You know, the MC5 were really one of the first rock bands to do that. And they became the soundtrack to a cultural tipping point played over scenes of tear gas and police brutality. And for more on the other nominated artists, check out Tony Sokol's article, Rock Hall 2019 Nominees Announced. All right. Very cool. Yeah. I'm excited that some of those guys are getting the attention and recognition that they deserve. Now, my third and final item is also a list. And it's basically, you guessed it, the biggest news and highlights from New York Comic Con 2018 put together by Ivan Huang for Den of Geek. And there's a huge list here, including the Simon Pegg uh, announcement. But I'm just going to highlight a couple of the things on the list that caught my attention. First of all, the DC imprint Vertigo is back. And that was one of my favorite comic book imprints uh, when I was in college. And it came back with a new adult title called Hex Wives. And Mark Buxton of Den of Geek talked to the writer Ben Blacker and the artist Mirka Andolfo at New York Comic Con. And the title depicts the battle between a coven of perpetually reincarnating witches and an all-male conspiracy known as the Architects. But the main character in this one is a witch who wakes up with no memory of this ancient conflict and the resulting uh, things that happen from that. So excited that Vertigo is back. That was an announcement from the con. Now, our social media guru, Brian Berman, put together some of the best cosplay from New York Comic Con based on readers who tagged themselves with hashtag NYCC geek on Twitter and Instagram. And the highlights include a great version of carnage, uh, the comic book character. And it was a kid with the costume on. So it was really kind of fun. There were a couple of sisters who put together spot on versions of Tina and Louise Belcher from Bob's burgers. And in fact, they were standing outside of one of the Bob's burgers, pop-up food trucks that were around all weekend long on the streets of New York. And you know that this list had to have a Bowsette in there since that was a very topical uh, character that showed up in the news. And certainly there was some Bowsettes and just so much more. You have to check out that list. Um, The list of cosplay was part of the list from the highlights. So it's kind of embedded on several levels there. Yeah. And I mean, and, and cosplay, as you know, I mean, it's an art in and of itself. And, and I mean, some of these people are just uber talented. Right. And this is the kind of convention that people pull out the stops for. So uh, another highlight that was on the list, David Crow got to see the first 35 minutes of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. And he came away quite impressed. He called it the kind of adrenaline shot into the creative bloodstream the superhero genre desperately needs. It sparked with an energy and mischief alien to most movies based on Marvel stories. And David Crow has such a way with words. I just love reading his articles and he definitely was enthusiastic for that one. And a big chunk of the Titans cast showed up at New York Comic Con. This, of course, is the live action version of Teen Titans, the comic title. 
And it's got an October 12th premiere on DC Universe, the new streaming service. And Mike Cicchini, the editor-in-chief at Den of Geek, was quick to add all the New York Comic Con news, including a new trailer, to his regularly updated article on the new TV show, which follows a team, of course, led by Robin, who famously says F Batman in early looks at the show. So that's just four items there that I listed there. This list is huge. So if you really want to just check out what happened at New York Comic Con and just want to get the high points, check out the article by Ivan Huang, New York Comic Con 2018, Biggest News and Highlights. And one of the things that was at New York Comic Con actually was an activation for the movie Skyscraper. So it's appropriate that we have an actor from Skyscraper as part of our bonus item, our bonus interview for the podcast today. Chin Han is a Singaporean actor who always brings his A-game to any role he inhabits, no matter how big or small. He's been in TV shows like Arrow and Marco Polo, and his film credits include The Dark Knight, Independence Day Resurgence, and Ghost in the Shell, most recently. In Skyscraper, he plays a visionary billionaire, Zhao Longji, who, in a display of hubris, builds the tallest building in the world in downtown Hong Kong called The Pearl. But he's not a villain, and he's not even a conventional corner-cutting egomaniac. So he's a very unique character. Here he is talking about Zhao Longji from the Dwayne Johnson action film. I'm excited to talk to you today about Skyscraper. I enjoyed it over the weekend to prepare for the uh, interview, and it was just uh, a joy to watch. So thanks for joining me. Thanks, Michael. Now, uh, Skyscraper in some ways reminds me of the great disaster films of the 1970s, like The Towering Inferno, Poseidon Adventure, and others, with a little bit of Die Hard kind of sprinkled in there. Did you enjoy those movies yourself as a kid? And and what do you think this film has that kind of distinguishes itself from those earlier examples? Oh, yes. No, absolutely. I mean, I think it has all the elements of those movies uh, of your... Uh, you know, when I read the script, I mean, it really evoked a lot of uh, great memories from all those films. So, uh, yeah, I do love this particular genre uh, of, of movie. Uh, with Skyscraper, um, I think the, the thing that distinguishes uh, Skyscraper uh, is is where we're at in terms of the visual effects and in terms of the, the level of practical effects that we can also achieve on set. The movie looks incredible with the villain uh, here in this movie played by Roland Miller with a family in peril, uh, Neff Campbell, and those two incredible kids as well. The enigmatic uh, architect of this whole uh, building, which uh, again is reminiscent of another great uh, disaster movie, <laughs> Titanic, really. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so it has all those elements of human uh, hubris, and then the determination to survive, and then obviously a very a dominant theme in the movie is the is the power of a family. Yeah, and this movie has all of those things, too. Now, your character in Skyscraper is a bit of a visionary whose building is self-sustaining and very artistically constructed. Were you kind of relieved in some ways that your character was not directly responsible for cutting corners or design flaws? Because he's basically <laughs> a good guy against all expectations. Uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I mean, I think that if you know the story of of how the design of the building was, you know, came about. It basically came about from uh, Neil Rawson and, and Jim Bessel's discussions 
on how how it was made, and it was based on a fable about the boy who jumps into the river, picks out a pearl, transforms into a dragon, and then saves his village. So this, this particular visionary has a bit of a, a savior complex as well. You know, he wants to build a better world. So, you know, unlike the characters in the other movies, I think he is the opposite, actually. He's not cutting corners. He's not trying to, uh, you know, get ahead of the race uh, just so that he can be number one. But he really wants to, you know, make a better world, you know, a self-sustaining one, and to build this uh, sentient kind of uh, structure. Well, it's interesting. There's a great uh, line that humanizes your character where Dwayne Johnson's character practices his Chinese, and Mm -hmm. your character kind of jokes with him about (laughs) not knowing more than that. And I think that kind of just set the stage very well for your character (laughs) of being just a regular guy. Yeah, that scene was very funny. I mean, we tried on a lot of different lines, and then we eventually decided on on that that line of Mandarin with uh, with Dwayne. But I mean, it, it totally humanizes him, and uh, but also a testament to uh, Dwayne's commitment as an actor. I remember him working on that one line, and and you know, <laughs> they're desperately wanting to get it right, and uh, I think he did. <laughs> Now, you're from Singapore, where there are plenty of beautiful skyscrapers. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Hong Kong has a wonderful skyline as well. Did you find that the setting of the movie in Hong Kong is an important part of the story as yeah. this area where they're they're always pushing those boundaries in architecture? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, Hong Kong is a perfect place for it because of the landscape, right? I mean, I think that because of the small landmass and because of being surrounded by hills, right? And it's very hilly in Hong Kong that it's almost compelling the city to be built uh, vertically, you know? And and so this fits right into that kind of, uh, this fits, you know, the, the pole fits right into that environment. In fact, when we were doing the press tour, we did the junkets at the uh, Ritz-Carlton, uh, and we stayed in the Ritz-Carlton, which was about 120 stories. I think my... my you know, my suite was up in uh, the 110th, and when I was in there, it just, it was so stunning. I mean, the landscape was just so beautiful, but I mean, I totally understood why the movie takes place there. Um, uh, yeah. And, well, and also, it's interesting that it takes place in Asia, but the Asians themselves are not the villains or the heroes, which I think was important that the villain himself was not Asian, Oh, right. Uh, or right. from Hong Kong himself. So I thought that was an interesting choice that neither the hero nor the villain were from the area that it took place. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I think, I think there, there's something to be said about grounding. It, it just makes sense, you know, to have that number of, of Asian characters in a movie set in, in, in Asia. You know, I think and, and these are all characters that are substantial to the narrative. And uh, I think you know, I think it was uh, Rawson who was quite determined to get the linguistic elements of the movie right. So he wanted actors who, you know, speak Cantonese or Mandarin as their native tongues, and he got those actors to do that, which was which is great. On top of the fact that you know, with a movie this big and and larger than life, and with these huge action set pieces, I think you need that level of authenticity to have the audiences uh, feel for the characters. 
Now, along those lines, having played a role in Ghost in the Shell yourself, which had its own whitewashing controversy with the casting of Scarlett Johansson, but now having Skyscraper being released in the age of movies like Crazy Rich Asians, would you say Skyscraper was able to play a role in supporting positive roles for Asian actors? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, every bit counts, you know, in the in the conversation. Even movies like Ghost in the Shell that, that raise a lot of questions, you know, I think those kinds of discussions only move us forward, you know, in terms of uh, filmmaking. I mean, it's because of the discussions that we've been having over the years that a movie like Skyscraper is possible, that, you know, a movie like Crazy Rich Asians is possible, or Searching, you know, that John Cho movie, is because the, the conversation is ongoing. And we're constantly looking to, you know, I think, from, I can't speak to, you know, the industry at large, but for myself, you know, whenever I step into a role, I mean, there's always a question of, Having it not be uh, token, you know, I, I think it is important. I think, and that's the next step, you know, in terms of where we're going with uh, diversity. That that these characters have a life of their own, and these characters are written in a you know rich and and, and, and compelling uh, manner, you know, equal to the other characters, you know, in in the movie. So, I mean, for myself, that 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 is the thing that I look for, you know that the character is crucial to the narrative as well. Well, I think that certainly that was true for Zhao Longji in Skyscrapers, and we really enjoyed your character in the movie. So thanks very much, Chin Han, for talking to us about Skyscraper. Ah. Mm, thanks, Michael. All right, so that was a really interesting insight, not only into the movie, but also into the phenomenon of you know whitewashing and the increasing representation of Asian actors in Hollywood. So I was so glad Chin Han was able to share his insights about the industry with us and the excitement for the movie as well. But we hope you enjoyed our news items this week from New York Comic Con and otherwise. But that's going to be it for this installment of the Den of Geek podcast. Join us again in two weeks for the October 2018 late edition of G News when we'll hash out the latest from denofgeek.com and share some more behind-the-scenes content from your favorite TV shows, movies, and more. And if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.